Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm David Maher and this is The Reckoning and we've come to the appeal of George Pell against the jury verdict that sent him to jail for over six years. The appeal was heard over two days before the Victorian Court of Appeal in the musty, old, historic Supreme Court in Melbourne. It was a high-profile set of judges that heard the case. Melissa Davey is my colleague at The Guardian, and she sat through the trials. She was one of only three or four journalists in the world who sat through both of George Pell's trials. It's not common to have both the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal, Anne Ferguson, and also the President, Chris Maxwell, both on the same bench. And joining them was Reserve Judge Mark Weinberg, who... It's probably the most experienced out of the three, especially in matters of criminal law. Representing Pell was Brett Walker, flowing in from Sydney and considered to be one of the best, if not the very best, appeals barristers in Australia. There was always going to be an appeal. No one ever expected that Pell would just quietly go off to prison and, um, you know, sit out his time. It was always going to go to a higher court. Pell had every right to do that, and he has squads of the best lawyers to conduct that appeal for him. We all knew from early on what his appeal grounds were. Two of them are trivial technicalities, which really we don't have to worry about. And when the appeal was actually argued over a couple of days in Melbourne, they barely got any airtime at all. The centre of his appeal is this. The claim that the jury, having looked at all of the evidence, came to a decision that was wrong. I mean, you know that you have to satisfy us that the jury must have had a doubt. The judges look at all of the evidence again. And they ask themselves... Do we have a doubt which the jury ought yes, to have had? you have to start with that, yes. That, yes. I mean, that's, that, that's there. Yes. It's fundamental, foundational, and that's why we read the whole of the record. That's right. Should the jury have had reasonable doubts about Pell's guilt? And then, having asked the question, one then moves to the question whether that which in most cases is described as the advantage the jury has from seeing and hearing the evidence being given, explains or resolves what would otherwise be 
the reasonable doubt. The mystery in this process is how the judges go about assessing the experience of the jury. Was there something about the experience of the trial, about being there for those weeks and weeks and weeks in the trial court, something that the jury experienced that they as judges can't really experience, that might explain why the jury put aside reasonable doubts and convicted? There is and the argument, a web around all of this, of evidence, is so much about where people were in and around the cathedral at the critical time. On one of two possible Sundays in December 1996. So central to the defence argument during the trial was that this could not have happened. It was improbable, it was impossible, and that when you considered all of those impossibilities or improbabilities together, it just could not have happened. Too many things would have had to have lined up in order for the abuse to have occurred. And this concept of impossibility and improbability came up during the appeal, and it kind of turned into quite a a philosophical discussion almost about what that means. Because Um, impossible itself is actually pitching it just a little bit too high because to prove impossibility isn't necessary to get Pell acquitted. Right. So one of the things that Walker said is that... If I was in New Zealand, I was not in Australia for the offending alleged to have occurred in Australia. It's very straightforward logic, but with respect... That's clearly impossible. If you can prove you're in New Zealand and yet someone's accusing you of a crime in Australia... You have an alibi. You have an alibi and it's impossible. And Walker said, you know what, Pell being possibly highly likely on the front steps of the chapel and yet also somehow making it to the pre-sacristy, that is as good as being in New Zealand when you're supposedly committing crimes in Australia. And then later in the afternoon, Maxwell, who is the president of the Court of Appeal, put it to to Walker that, no, that's not really right, is it? Like, it's pretty cut and dry if um, you're... If you're in Auckland and the murder is in, in Toowoomba. Right. But he said that actually witnesses in this trial gave several possibilities. Some said that it was entirely possible that Pell would be able to make it to the pre-sacristy after mass and perhaps no one saw him. Other ones said that, well, it wasn't really his custom to remain on the front steps after There was all this uncertainty. There was all this uncertainty. And there was a beautiful moment where Maxwell said, well... The argument for impossibility logically loses its force as uncertainty grows. Because there are so many possibilities here. He basically said to the defence, wouldn't you have been better off arguing that, of course, it was possible that maybe Pell was in the sacristy, it was possible he was here, it was possible he was there, but you can't say that beyond reasonable doubt with all these varying testimonies before the court. It's unfortunate in some ways that the case was pitched at the level of impossibility and that term was used repeatedly. Quite so. Uh, One one understands rhetorically why that may have been done. Quite so. um, It's quite misleading in lots of ways, it seems to me. And then on top of that, you had a compelling witness, you know, a compelling complainant 
who by all accounts was eloquent and truthful and honest. And one of the things that was discussed in the appeal is perhaps the defence presented their case in the wrong way by raising this impossibility thing. The risk of running it that way is that the jury, faced with competing arguments, answers the wrong question. They answer the question, was it possible? And if the jurors convicted based on that argument and based on the believability of the complainant, then it's not that they got it wrong. It's not a criticism of the jury. Perhaps it's a criticism of the way they were presented with the evidence. But it does seem to me, in hindsight, that the use of the term impossible on slides, for example, impossible, there were lots of things that one might have said were inherently improbable or unlikely. And the Crown's response was, this was entirely possible, this was entirely possible, this was entirely possible, going to particular pieces of evidence which allowed that uh, conclusion to be reached. Yes. Your Honours, I want to start, if, if I may, um, with... On the last day of the appeal... The question of... It seemed pretty clear that everybody was most interested in the evidence of a man called Monsignor Charles Portelli. He's the master of ceremonies, or was, of the Archbishop in Melbourne, and he was the one who gave evidence that, firstly, Pell was on the steps at the West End, door of the cathedral for some time after Mass, right from the beginning, and he also gave evidence that in obedience to an ancient custom, he never left the side of the Archbishop when the Archbishop was robed. Ultimately, he's going to say, of course, that he was with the Archbishop. And under cross-examination, Portelli gave some some sort of sliver of the possibility that he might have been mistaken or that custom wasn't necessarily exactly followed at that time. In chief, he can't recall whether there was process internally or externally. Now, if he can recall, actually recall, being with the Archbishop on that day, then he would have to remember whether there was an external or internal procession, if that's what, if he really recalls it. What emerged in the very last hours of the appeal as the evidence that most urgently matters to Pell's defence, as well as the Crown's case. And Pell's barrister, the enormously skilful Brett Walker SC, had three quarters of an hour to an hour at the end of the proceedings as a, as a final attempt to persuade the, the, the judges of Pell's case, and he spent nearly all of it on Portelli's evidence. Not seen any evidence that the Crown can point to to say there is an inherent unlikelihood in what Monsignor Portelli says about the Archbishop's conduct at the West Door on the steps with congregants, or Monsignor Portelli's punctilious performance of the centuries-old requirement not to leave a fully-robed Archbishop alone. That's what he wants to convince the judges raises the kind of reasonable doubts that can't be swept aside by saying, well, the jury took a slightly different view. My impression of the trial that 
was that his evidence was challenged, that he didn't necessarily come across as a impartial witness. And there was some talk that he couldn't possibly have always been by Pell's side, that sometimes um, Pell had to rush away for a meeting, in which case, you know, Portelli would go and get the car ready and Pell would join him later in the car park. There was talk about um, Portelli being a smoker and perhaps he ducked away for a cigarette. Um, And I think that there could have been a sense among some people... In the jury. In the jury that... He was biased towards Pell. And the other thing is, is that the jury was given very strong directions that it's up to them as to who they believe. They are the deciders of fact. And it was quite legitimate for them to say, we don't believe Patelli's evidence, or we do believe it. We absolutely think he's an alibi. But I think you could hear from the judges in, in the appeal that they placed a lot of weight on this one. And because if you believe Portelli, it is very hard to sweep to sweep his evidence aside and and convict. But the but but, but the impression he made on the jury, I think, is probably absolutely crucial here. And that's the central pillar of the legal system, that the jurors are ultimately the, the deciders of fact in this case. It is up to them to decide whether he was a credible and believable witness. But in the appeal, the facts are looked at again by the judges. And I wonder whether Pell's fate now rests on them coming to a rather different conclusion about the personality, the outlook and the loyalties of Monsignor Portelli. That's interesting because so much happened over the past two days and so many things were teased out that I would be reluctant to guess on which factor these judges might be honing in on. Melissa, we have not talked about Boyce yet. Ah, yes, Boyce. Boyce is Christopher Boyce, who is leading the prosecution's case in this appeal. And finding himself over and again at a loss for words. It was so interesting because at the beginning I thought, okay, it's quite normal for someone to be a bit anxious or to find their feet after a few minutes. But It was a terrible slip that he made. There was a slip that he made early on. So he started off very strong saying, look, this complainant, he is believable. Was a very compelling witness. He was clearly not a liar. He was not a fantasist. He was a witness of truth. But then quite early on, he accidentally said the complainant's name. Now, there's a suppression on the complainant's name. You can't use it. You can't publish it. And in court, suppressed names are used freely all the time because they're not broadcast live throughout <laughs> the world. It wasn't quite live. Um, it was There was a 15-second delay and the name was apparently chopped out before it went to air. But that seemed a rattle voice. But he just... He just um, He paused, he prevaricated, he would sometimes charge off down a main road and then find, 
oh, he, he would find some bit of forest to wander into. And then breaking free from that, you'd see a clearing and you would think we're all, we're on the way now. And then another bit of bush and he would be in there and the judges were following it. They were peppering him with questions, much more questioning than they subjected Brett Walker to, who was representing Pell. And, and there came a moment in the day where... Well, that's perhaps the point yeah. I'm trying to get at. What, what, for the purposes of our consideration, does this notion of the importance of the jury, uh, what function does it have? What the judges were inviting Boyce to do was really to sing an aria in praise of the jury process. Is it, is it because the High Court says, and it's a strong thing to second-guess a jury on a question of fact? Is that the kind of proposition? Yes. yes. Is it the policy that the community has more confidence in the unanimous verdict of 12 people drawn from different walks of life than three judges who have led sheltered lives? So it might be thought. Why is the jury more accurate or better decided in this case matter? than us? Tell us, convince us. Why did the jury get it right? What is the importance of juries? Which should be an easy question for anyone in law to answer. Well, particularly a prosecutor who, who works in Victoria, always in front of juries, and it just dried up. Um, well, that was, um, I, I must say, I, 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 that's obviously important. That, that I would, it, community confidence in, in, the, uh, in the result. He couldn't answer, could he? And at some point... He made a couple of attempts and then stopped and then... Weinberg threw him a bone. It helps, Mr Boyce. Um, I've said previously in judgments that juries almost always get it right. But uh, the word is almost. Couldn't you argue that jurors often get it right? That's what the evidence shows. Look, it, it? was a, it was a, it was a, it was a disappointing performance for the person who was responsible for bringing the argument to the Court of Appeal that this verdict should be upheld. The weight the performance will have with the judges themselves, I think, is not great because, really, these decisions in the end are made on the basis of their reading, their, their grasp of the evidence, their you know, visits to the site, and, we know now, trying on the robes, the archbishop's robes, to see what is possible under there or out of there or through there. Right, because the jurors had the robes with them in the jury room and they were able to pick them up and lift them up and feel them, put them on. We don't know if they did, but Boyce Can't invited... Can't imagine they didn't. Well, Boyce invited the judges to do the same. And they seemed to take up the invitation quite cheerfully. Perhaps they're doing it tonight. But Boyce also struggled to answer some very basic questions about the case itself. And that's what I found somewhat troubling. It wasn't Boyce, remember, remember, that led the trial for the prosecution. That was Mark Gibson, who is a very experienced prosecutor, very calm, completely unflappable. And it was a stark contrast to... He was sitting there beside him. He was sitting there beside him. But it was Boyce who led the appeal and that's not unusual. It's very unusual for the same person who prosecuted the trial to also prosecute the appeal. But There's I did some point wonder, of etiquette there, apparently. I did wonder what Gibson must be thinking about Boyce's performance. Having said that, I've spoken to people who say that Boyce didn't perform too badly. It was really interesting because a lot of people in the court really felt like Boyce was messing it up. But 
I have spoken to some lawyers who think it wasn't that bad, so... Mm, I think the, the notices for Mr Boyce are mixed. I just would love to know what Gibson's thinking. Over the last two days, I've been speaking to many appeal lawyers, criminal lawyers, lawyers in Melbourne about their thoughts on this. And these are people who have sat through many appeals and who are very familiar with criminal law. And what strikes me is that all of them have different views about how this will go. And I just think that speaks to the complexity of this case and also to the fact that whatever decision the judges make, it will they will have considered it carefully. It, it's something that... I think ultimately will be a fair decision based on the evidence before them. But no one seems to be able to predict or pick it. back? That's my question. Do you think after this discussion that we need another episode when they rule? You of betcha! Of course! Yes! Yeah. Miles, yeah. don't be ridiculous. Right. Right. when David yeah. and I just... Okay, great. All right. The best well, tell her, just give me the, we'll be back. We'll be back when the Court of Appeal makes up its mind with The Reckoning. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.